Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Praise be to God. So I grew up in the South, around a lot of lifted trucks, a lot of very lifted trucks. Uh, and a lot of them were for show. Uh, but then every once in a while, one of my buddies would show up at uh, school, his truck just caked in mud. And I knew he'd been mudding that weekend. Now, I did not want to be one of these guys. Right? I've told you before about you know, some of my neuroses as a kid. Like I didn't want to play the guitar because that's what every Christian man did, so therefore I wasn't going to do it. I was rebelling. I wasn't going to be a redneck, so I didn't want to go mudding ever. Right? That was me. Uh, I know, it's, and I missed out on so much, and I learned this recently. Um, so I got a 4 by 4 because I was like, we live in Colorado. I need to take advantage of some of these trails. We need to get out and do some real off-roading. And so I bought, a, I bought a truck, and we lifted it, which was crazy because, like, inside, I'm like, this was not who I was going to be, but it's who I am now, and I'm going to own it. And so this past weekend, we took my truck out for the first time, and we, uh, we went up Yankee Hill, which is just west of, Cal- uh, of Central City, uh, just north of Idaho Springs, and it was so much fun. We had the kids in the back and Beth's with me, and uh, we finally got my truck out and got it muddy and got to go up the trail, and it took, you know, two hours to go nine miles, which was awesome. Um, we're out there with all the other trucks, and the Wrangler guys are looking at me like, you driving a Lexus? What is wrong with you? You know, it was, it was wonderful. It was amazing. Um, and a few times on the trail, like, we were in a pretty precarious situation. It looked at my, and my kids were like, Daddy, are we going to tip over? Daddy, are we going to tip over? But, but, but it wasn't like a terrified, you know, thing. It was like a, this is really fun kind of thing. And, and in that moment, it was so good to be trusted by my children with this, like, you know, crazy heavy vehicle on this little path. And if we get stuck, man, we are stuck because I don't have a winch, right? I can't get us out of it. I'm going to have to rely on everybody else. But... My kids had such a great time, even when they were really scared. And there were a couple moments when they really thought, man, we're going to get stuck. I'm I'm really scared. Maybe we're going to flip over. What's going on? But they trusted me. And that was like, as a dad, I was like, oh, that's good stuff. Like, yes, my kids trust me to get them through this. They trust me to get them up this trail and get them back home. They trust me that this truck is not going to flip over onto our family. We are going to make it out alive. We're going to do well. And because they trusted me, even the scary things became kind of fun for them. Even the scary part. In fact, maybe that's the most fun, right? Aside from driving through like the really big puddles, it was being able to trust dad and have fun and bounce this truck around and know we're going to get out of it and we're going to be good. And that allowed them to be free and to breathe easy and have a good time. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. The entire book of Revelation, that's what it's about. 
It's about trusting Jesus the way that my kids trusted me with that truck. Right? If you've ever, uh, we've been in this for 19 chapters, but some of y'all are fairly new with us here. And so, uh, you know, it, it's been a weird ride. Like there's a lot of weird stuff in Revelation. And from the very beginning, I told you, if you just keep your eyes on Jesus, if you just keep your eyes on Jesus through Revelation, it'll get you through the weird stuff. Like if you can just remember that it's not about timelines and it's not about, you know, interpreting every little thing and applying it to, to historical events and what's happening and obsessing over every tiny thing that's going to happen. It's about keeping your eyes on Jesus and trusting him through everything. And so before we jump into this text today, I, I want us to review just a little bit because we've come a long way and we are getting toward the end. And today we see the final victory of Jesus. Today we finally get to Jesus' final victory, the final win in the book of Revelation. And it is glorious. But you got to know where we've been to really appreciate this. So let's look at some of the characters we've met so far. Right at the beginning, very first thing you meet is Jesus. Right, you got the Apostle John. He's, he's on this island called Patmos. He's been exiled from his community. He's been exiled from his home in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And John is the bishop of Ephesus. He's the bishop over the churches of Asia Minor. He is the guy in charge of these churches. That's what he has been called to do. But because he is the guy in charge... The local authorities have said, you know what? We don't like these Christian guys. We're going to get rid of their leader, and then they'll fall apart. And so John gets sent to this island where he's, he's in exile, and he's writing this letter back to all the churches that he's in charge of, all the churches that he's in leadership over. And that's what Revelation is. It's the letter to all these churches. And so we can, we can infer just from that circumstance that these churches are suffering. They're having a hard time of it. The local authorities, they don't like the Christians. And they don't like them for a number of reasons. They don't like the Christians because it's a new religion. At least that's how the Romans view it. They view Christianity as a new religion. And in Rome, you're not allowed to have a new religion unless it's registered with the empire and empire approved. And the Christians aren't going to do that. Right? They start out as this sect of Judaism. So they're kind of covered under Judaism. So the Romans at first are like, okay, well, you're, you're, kind of, I mean, you're all right. Like you're following this Jewish guy. You're covered under Judaism. And then after a while, when the Jews begin to reject the Christians, the Romans go, wait, hold up. The, the Jews, don't, their friends don't even like them anymore. So we can't allow them to continue. And so that's when the local authorities begin to go after the church. And so being a Christian in this day and age, following Jesus, means losing your social contacts. It means losing your friendships. It means losing an income, losing a livelihood. I mean, following Jesus in this day and age at this time means giving up everything for Jesus. Everything. Something that I'm guessing everyone in this room can't possibly imagine. We've never had to make that choice here in the U.S., We've never had to make that choice. Unless you've come from somewhere else where the church is persecuted, that's, that's, a, that's something that we don't have to think about very often. And yet, that was the situation then. So you only follow Jesus if you're really about it. Right? If you're really consumed with him, if you're really given to him, you only follow Jesus if you're okay with it, meaning losing everything. Only, you know, after a while of being persecuted, after a while of struggling, you can imagine that some of these Christians are beginning to think, is this really worth it? I don't know. Like, wouldn't it be easier just to go along with the Romans? Is it really worth giving up my livelihood? Is it really worth this suffering that I'm facing? I mean, 
we've heard of this guy who was martyred. He was killed for following Jesus. Like, is it worth that? I just don't know anymore. So you can imagine in the early church, these folks beginning to question. And that's the occasion for the writing of Revelation. That's the occasion for Jesus coming to John and saying, I want you to give a message to my people. I want you to give a message to my suffering people. And from then on, from the time that John sees Jesus and begins to write this letter to these churches, he begins to see visions. First, the vision of the throne room of God, where he sees God on the throne in all of his glory and all of his majesty. And then he sees another person at the throne, this one like a slaughtered lamb. He sees Jesus in his sacrificial state on the throne of God. And you go in Revelation chapters 5 and 6, when you see this slaughtered lamb on the throne, you're supposed to be kind of puzzled. You're supposed to be like, hold up, wait a minute. Like, we're living under the thumb of the most powerful empire in the world. We're living under the thumb of the most powerful military in the world. We are living under the persecution of these people who have all the authority and all the power. And you're telling me to trust in a slaughtered lamb? Like, like really? That's, that's, that's what you're going for here, Jesus? And so after the throne room scene, after you see this slaughtered lamb, then begin these cycles that we've been walking through, these cycles of judgment. And these judgments are the judgment of God upon the wicked systems of the world, upon the wicked empire, upon Rome, upon the oppressors of the church, upon the enemies of the church. And you see these for a couple of cycles, and then in chapter 12, we meet the one who's really behind it all. In chapter 12, we meet the dragon, who is the devil, who is Satan, who is God's enemy. And he looks so strong. He looks so powerful. He looks so overwhelming. He looks like the Roman Empire looks to these suffering Christians. Like there is no way you can beat this guy. And then in addition to the dragon, you get this beast that comes up out of the water. This beast that is the servant of the dragon. And he's coming after the Christians too. So now you've got the dragon pursuing the Christians. You've got the beast that comes up out of the water. He's pursuing the Christians. And then finally you've got another beast out of the land that pops up. And this other beast is kind of the mouthpiece of the dragon. He's the mouthpiece of the first beast. He's also called the false prophet in Revelation. And his job is to trick Christians into following the beast. His job is to make it look like the beast is powerful and the beast is glorious and the beast can't lose. Therefore, you should follow the beast, no one else. That's the job of the false prophet. And so Revelation is building up this imagery, building up all of these pictures of the Roman Empire, building up all these pictures of the people who are oppressing the church. And they want to make it look Jesus in this image wants to make the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, what we call the unholy trinity, he wants to make them look very powerful. He wants to make them look overwhelmingly strong so that when Jesus shows up on the scene to judge them, you understand just how powerful the slaughtered lamb really is. Just so that when Jesus shows up to actually bring victory, you understand that this one, like a slaughtered lamb, this Jesus who's going to judge the nations, is so overwhelmingly powerful that even the dragon and the beast and the false prophet have nothing that compare in terms of power and authority to Jesus. I've said it a couple times in the past few weeks, and, and it just was confirmed again as I read through the Bible, book of Revelation. You know there are no actual wars or battles in Revelation. Not a one. Twice we've seen armies muster for battle against Jesus. Twice we have seen these overwhelmingly powerful armies getting ready to bring war on Jesus. And then each time what happens? 
Jesus returns and it's all over. Like, there's no battle. There's no war. There's no armies going to fight one another because they're not necessary. Jesus' authority, Jesus' power is so overwhelming, so great, that he just wipes out the armies of his enemies without a second thought, without a second breath. Jesus shows up and boom, it's over. And that's exactly what happens here in Revelation 19. And so we begin with the first vision here in verses 11 to 16, this vision of Jesus, where we have some of the imagery back from chapter 1. Remember when Jesus shows up on the scene in chapter 1, when John sees him in this vision, Jesus has eyes like fire and he's got feet like bronze and he's dressed in this golden robe with this sash and he is royal to the nth degree, right? He's as royal as you can be. He's as powerful as you can be. And so they borrow some of the imagery from chapter 1 when Jesus shows up again, only now he shows up a little bit differently. He's crowned with many crowns. This is a symbol of Jesus' authority over absolutely everyone and everything. Nothing can challenge the authority of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're facing, whatever struggle you've got going on right now, it cannot challenge the authority of Jesus. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one with all power and authority in all things. And so he's crowned with many crowns. And he has a name written on it that no one knows except himself. There was this idea among ancient, uh, ancient philosophers, ancient magicians, that if you know a thing's name, you can gain power over it. And so by saying he has a name that no one else knows, it's just another way of saying there's no one who has any power over Jesus. No one can command him. No one can call him out and tell him what to do. He is the ultimate authority. And then we get to 13 and 14, maybe the weirdest parts of this. In 13, he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. And so here Jesus comes. He's wearing this white robe, but it's been dipped in blood. Whose blood is this? Whose blood is Jesus' robe dipped in? Well, there are two answers. One is that Jesus hasn't gone to battle yet. There's been no war yet. No, no enemies are down yet. And so the blood covering Jesus' robe is his own. Remember, he's the slaughtered lamb. He is the one who died on behalf of his people. He's the one who died on behalf of his enemies to make them his friends, to make them his brothers and sisters. Jesus' robe is covered in his own blood, the blood of the sacrifice. The blood of the lamb who gave himself up for his people. And this is one more reminder of who Jesus is. That he is that sacrificial lamb who's given himself up to make his enemies his friends. But the other image, because this draws on imagery from Isaiah 63 and from a couple of other Old Testament passages, is that Jesus' blood is covered, Jesus' robe is covered in the blood of his enemies. Yeah, he hasn't gone to war yet. But remember, Revelation isn't really about chronology. It's about wrapping up all of this supernatural imagery kind of into one picture. And so Jesus' robe is covered in the blood of his enemies. He is the victor. He is the one against whom no one can stand. He is covered in the blood of those who would stand opposed to him and to his people. And he's called the word of God. Jesus is the very word of God in the flesh, the word incarnate. The very truth of God manifested as a person. He's followed by the armies 
in heaven, all on white horses. There was an idea in the ancient world that white horses were superior to all others. Right? Only the most noble of people get white horses. These are beautiful. These are powerful. These are symbols of victory and of power. And the fact that all of Jesus' followers in heaven, all of the armies of heaven are riding white horses speaks to the wealth and the power and authority of this army. Nothing can defeat this army. Nothing can stand against this army. But as we're going to see in a minute, this army doesn't even have to fight because Jesus is there. And why don't they have to fight? Because in verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. Now that's a weird picture, right? Jesus isn't holding a sword in his hand. He doesn't have a sword on his side, not in a scabbard, not sheathed. The sword is coming from his mouth. Jesus will win the war by the truth of the word of God. Jesus doesn't have to swing a sword. Jesus speaks truth. He speaks judgment. And that alone is enough to cower and defeat his enemies. Jesus only needs to speak a word. Remember, this is the one by whom all things are made, according to Colossians 1. He is the word of God by which God created the earth. This is the one who speaks and it is so. Who says a word and mountains crumble. This is the one who, by his very breath, created humanity. He doesn't need to wield a physical sword against them. He needs only speak a word and the world could be unmade. That's the power that Jesus wields. That's the authority that he wields. And when we see Jesus here in this picture, when we see him in his power, and we read that he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. All of this imagery is made for you to go, oh, you, you, Jesus, you are it. You are the one I want to follow. You're the one I want to be with. You are the one who no one can defeat. What are all of these things standing against me in comparison to you? What is whatever circumstance I face in life in comparison to you, Jesus? But it's meant to do another thing. Seeing Jesus here in all of his power and authority, seeing him here wielding the anger of God against all the evil of the world is supposed to knock you over in the realization of the grace of God. It's supposed to knock you over in the realization of the mercy of Jesus. If this is the God who sits on the throne, if this is Jesus in all of his glory and all of his power, the one who can unmake the world with a very word, then how much more amazing is it that he came and gave his life for you and for me? I mean, if this is who our sacrificial king is, then how much more amazing is it than when we were his enemies he came and laid down his life for us. Love is truly amazing. Sacrificial, self-giving love is truly the most breathtaking thing in the world. But how much more breathtaking is it when you know that the person who's giving it could snuff you out like that? We, 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 we like, you know, it, it's always amazing when you meet like some like really big, intimidating dude. Right, like 6'3", 280 pounds of muscle. He's strong. He's powerful. And then you meet the guy and you talk to him and he's like a big teddy bear. You, know, you just want to give him a big hug. He's just like the sweetest, most gentle. Isn't, isn't the, the hug, the gentle hug of a monstrous man that could crush you between his biceps, sweet and wonderful? Right? That sounds weird, I know. But 
But it's the same idea here, right? When you meet someone with such power and authority that you know they could take you out, they know they, you know they have no reason to love you, no reason to care for you, and yet they approach you with gentleness and kindness and love and grace. Isn't it such a sweet and savoring thing to enjoy the love of someone who doesn't owe you anything? And that's who Jesus is here. He's the king who comes, who reigns over the world, who is undefeatable, indestructible, and yet who has laid himself down. Because remember, his robe is covered in the blood that he shed for you and for me. His own blood that he gave up for us. We're supposed to look at this image and be reminded that Jesus is the center of revelation. Jesus is the center of the scripture. Jesus is the center of our lives. Jesus is the one that we are to give everything to because he's the only one worthy of everything that we are. And we're supposed to stand in awe of the grace and the kindness of this king warrior. And then we go to the next visions. There are two more visions here in chapter 19. One where John sees an angel standing in the sun and he calls out in a loud voice, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Man, ain't that a gross image. That's disgusting. To those of us who are unacquainted with war, especially ancient war, man, those, those imagery, that, that imagery is just, it's so foreign to our experience. It's so foreign to what we long for. And, and honestly, it's, it's gross. It's disgusting. And it's supposed to be. War is not supposed to be pretty. It's not supposed to be glorious. It's not supposed to be beautiful. Ask any veteran among us who's actually been to war. It is nothing glorious and wonderful. This war in heaven, this war at the end of all things, this war at at the return of Jesus is not an end of itself. War is never an end of itself. At its best, war is meant to drive out evil and to restore peace. At its best. Unfortunately, we're humans and all too often our wars don't end that way. But when Jesus comes in all of his glory and power to make war upon the enemies of God, his aim is to bring peace to the earth, to bring peace to his people, to destroy all of those things that stand opposed to him and to his people, to destroy evil, to destroy the oppressors. And so here, the angel is calling the birds of the air to the feast that's going to come when Jesus brings judgment. And that's hard for us to hear sometimes. We who are unacquainted with war, we, we who live so far distant from this time and place, but we ought to want the righteous judgment of God upon his enemies. We ought to desire it. It is a good and right thing to desire the righteous and holy judgment of God upon evil. Because nothing we can do can rid the world of evil. Nothing you and I can do can ultimately rid the world of the pains and the brokenness that dominate it. Nothing you know, the early church could do could rid the world of Rome and of the oppression that they were feeling. Only Jesus, only Christ, only God in his righteous judgment can ultimately end evil. And that's what he's calling for here. The glorious Lamb of God who comes riding on this white horse 
has come to finally end evil. This is an encouragement to his people who are suffering. Your suffering will not last forever. I will bring judgment in my truth. I will bring judgment and I will end your suffering. I will end the oppression. I will end evil once and for all. It is coming. You can trust me. And then we have this final vision where John sees the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies and they're gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast is taken prisoner and along with it the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. So all the armies of the earth opposed to Christ, opposed to God, are mustered together, ready to make war on God, ready to make war on Jesus. And instead of a battle, we get an arrest. Jesus shows up with his army of white-horsed people from heaven and the sword coming from his mouth, ready for judgment. And all the armies opposed to him are mustered in. And you can see them standing off with one another. And then before a battle can even take place, Jesus has the beast in custody. Jesus has the false prophet in custody. He's taken into custody the leaders of the evils of the world. And then we're told he wipes out the army with the sword of his mouth. That is with his word, with the word of truth. He ends the army of the evil one. He ends the army of the beast. He defeats Rome with the words of his mouth and takes captive the leaders of Rome, the leaders of evil. He takes captive the beast and the false prophet. And we read, the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. This is meant to be a disgusting counterpoint to the wedding feast of the lamb that we read about in the first part of chapter 19. In the first part of chapter 19, we read this angel declaring the victory of Jesus and inviting all people to the wedding feast of the lamb where Jesus would finally wed his people, wed his bride, the church, the people of God. And there's this beautiful feast, this party that never ends. And here we're supposed to see a a, a grotesque counterpoint to that where the birds of the air are feasting upon the remains of the evils of the world. And that's where we end in chapter 19. That's where we end with the ultimate victory of Jesus. Now, as we move into chapter 20, we're going to see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. We're going to see the kingdom of God come down and Jesus ruling and reigning over this world that is now cleansed of evil, cleansed of oppression, cleansed of the wicked powers that stand opposed to God's people. But in the meantime, this is where we find ourselves. And isn't this where we find ourselves? Locked in this supernatural war, locked in this battle where we face oppression, where we face, where our brothers and sisters around the world face persecution, actual physical persecution. But where you and I face oppression by the enemy, where you and I face difficulties and struggles brought on by the sin and the brokenness and evil of the world. Right now, we live in this in-between place. We live in what we call the now and the not yet. The time when Jesus has come as king, been crucified, risen again, and reigns over the earth from heaven. And the time in the future when he will return and make an end of evil. When this day of the Lord comes and Jesus comes to make all things right and new. We live in the middle ground where we still face struggle. We still face suffering. And this was exactly the case for the original readers of the Revelation. This was exactly the case for the original people John was writing to. They were struggling. And they were struggling in a lot of ways that you and I can't even imagine. That we've never had to face. 
And this is the message of Jesus to them. In this in-between hour, in this time where darkness still looks so strong and so powerful, in this time where you still face things like cancer and brokenness, when you still face things like, like theft and you still face violence and you still deal with all of the junk that humanity's sin and brokenness brings, in the in-between time, you can trust in the victory of Jesus. You can trust that he has it in hand. He will see you through. He will take you up this mountain. You will not get stuck. You will not just stay where you are. The truck is not going to flip over on you. Jesus has you in hand. He will hold on to you. Keep him at the center of everything. He is your life. And in the meantime, as we hold and trust to Jesus, as we hold tightly to this promise of victory in the here and now and in the future, Jesus has a word for us for how we, how we oppose his enemies just as he has. In the meantime, while we wait for this final defeat of evil, Jesus has modeled for us what it means to stand opposed to the enemies of God now. It means to live in his word. Remember, Jesus defeats evil, not with the sword of his hand, but with the sword of his mouth, with the truth of the word of God. And you and I, in this life, our only means of combating evil, our only true means of combating the forces of evil, of arrayed against God's church, against God's people, is to know and to cherish and to speak his truth, to speak his words, to hold tight to what God has said, and to speak the truth of God into every situation. That is how we confront evil in the world now. We speak the gospel of Jesus. We speak the truth of Christ into every situation. And by speaking truth, we make enemies into brothers and sisters. By speaking truth, we shame the devil and we shame the evils of the world. By speaking truth, we uphold the glory of God and we shine lights into dark places. When we speak truth, we are doing the most powerful thing we can do in the here and now to combat God's enemies, to stand opposed to sin, and to seek wholeness and healing for our world. Because that's the goal. The goal is not war the goal is not violence. The goal is not the battle. The point of all that is to bring God's peace and wholeness. And the goal of our speaking truth is not solely to shame people. It's not to hurt people. It's not to cut them down and be obnoxious. The goal of our speaking truth is restoration. The goal of our speaking truth is to bring people to the foot of the cross to get to know the king who gave his life for them, to get to know the God who loves them even when they were his enemies, to experience the fullness of life that only he can give. That's why we speak truth now. And the other way is to live in the sacrificial love of Jesus, the one whose robe is soaked in his own blood. To live in the sacrificial love of our king, who instead of speaking a word and wiping us out, chose to come and become one of us and to lay down his life on our behalf so that we could have a life that we don't deserve, so that we could have a life we couldn't gain for ourselves, to truly exhibit the reckless love of our God and to love our neighbors with abandon, 
To love the people we don't like with abandon. To love the people who offend us and who hurt us with abandon. To love them as Jesus has loved you and me. You can only do this when you recognize you were once an enemy of Jesus yourself. Deserving only of death. We can only do this when we ourselves own who we have been and who we are in Christ. I was his enemy, and now I am his friend. I was his enemy, and now I am his brother. I was his enemy, and now I am a child of God. If we are to love the enemies of God, if we are to love our own enemies on earth, it is by recognizing where we stood with God pre-Jesus and where we stand with him now. By allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work within us a love that is unnatural to who we are. To work within us an affection for people who we should hate. To work within us an affection for people who get on our nerves. To love people who are hard to love. Because you were once impossible to love. Let me tell you the truth. You're kind of impossible to love now. But through Jesus we do it. Jesus has given us these tools to stand against the evils of the world and to proclaim his goodness and his glory and the coming of his kingdom. Jesus has given us these tools to seek the fullness and the wholeness and the healing of our broken world. Know his word. Devour it. Live in it. Go to it for everything. Let it be your foundation. Know the word of God. Speak the truth of God into every situation. And then as you know the word and as you know Jesus, let his sacrificial love flow freely through you. Don't stop it. Don't block it. Don't put up walls and barriers against some people or against those people or against this group. But allow the sacrificial love of our King Jesus to work itself through you. That's how we oppose evil in the world. That's how we spread light. That's how we seek wholeness and healing for those around us who don't yet know Christ. And that's how we assure that at this end battle, that's how we assure that in this end time, in this end battle when Jesus returns, there are so few people on the other side, but that we're all lined up behind Jesus. We're all lined up with our King, worshiping and honoring Him. Because I... I want to I know that my friends know him. I want to know that the people in my world know him. I want to see the wholeness and the healing that only Jesus can bring spread to every corner of the world. And I'll do that through the word of truth and through sacrificial love. Let that be your aim today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the sacrificial love of Jesus. Thank you for your sacrificial love that chose to leave infinite glory to come and be one of us and to ultimately lay down your life for us, to take it up again, to rule and reign over us in the here and now from heaven and ultimately to promise that you would come and make an end of all evils. Lord, let us bow before your cross, bow before your throne, and Jesus, give us, give you everything that we are. I pray today that we are people of the word and of love, that we are people of truth and of sacrificial love so that we can see your purposes, we can see your kingdom, we can see your healing and your wholeness brought to every corner of our world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. 
Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.